0: You may be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 27 today, Matthew chapter 27. On Sunday mornings for the past few weeks, we have been highlighting the person and work of Christ as He came in fulfillment of the promises of God. And today we come to what is arguably the centerpiece of those promises. Today we come to Matthew 27 and we want to see Jesus' death on the cross. And even if you have not been with us these past few weeks on Sunday mornings, uh, it's okay. You won't be lost because this sermon stands on its own as it highlights the defining moment of all Christianity, namely the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is behind me today. The cross stands on top on the top of thousands of churches across this country. It is etched on hundreds of thousands of gravestones. It is worn as jewelry by multitudes of people. Why? Why is the cross so significant? It is significant because it is central to the Christian faith. It is central to all that Jesus Christ is and all that he was uh, sent to accomplish in this world. And this morning we want to see how Matthew paints for us a picture of this salvation, not in minute detail, but in broad strokes and with enough color and texture to help us see the cross of Christ as the fulfillment of the promises of God since the beginning of time itself to save people from their sins. Today we want to begin reading about Jesus' death. Uh, just after he has been arrested by the Jewish authorities and handed over to the Roman governor, Pilate. And so that will be at chapter 27, verse 11. That's where we want to begin this morning. Hear the word of God. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast of the governor, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, "Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. "'Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife said said this word to him, "'Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream.'" Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, "'Which of the two do you want me to release to you?' And they said, "'Barabbas!' Pilate said to them, "'Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ?' And they all said, "'Let him be crucified!' And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him they stripped him of the robe and put his own own clothes on him and led him away to to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they delivered his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. May God bless the reading of his word. This morning, though, having read that larger portion of scripture, we're going to focus our attention on the final verses of our passage, verses 45 through 54. And from these verses, we want to see why the cross of Christ is so significant. Not just in the course of the history of God's redemption, but why is it significant for us also today? What we want to see are four things that the cross of Christ achieves. First, the cross brings new access to God. The cross brings new access to God. From the moment of Jesus' death, we read the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, what is this curtain? Well, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know this was the curtain that hung in the Jewish temple standing at that time. Several uh, temples for the Jews had been built over the years. First, there was a kind of tent, a a proto-temple called the tabernacle that was built uh, under the leadership of Moses according to God's plan. You can read about that in the book of Exodus. Then came a permanent structure that David wanted to build and actually received the plans and layout for from God. But it was his son Solomon who actually constructed the temple. That temple was a permanent place for the people of God to gather and to worship. And yet, because of their sin, God caused that temple to be overran by Israel's enemies and destroyed. Later showing mercy, God directed a man by the name of Zerubbabel to be- rebuild the temple structure. And much later, a larger, more impressive temple was built by the Jews, by the Roman ruler Herod. Lots of temples, but all of them had the same basic Design And it included divisions within the temple itself. Each section indicated a closer level of intimacy with God who dwelled. He manifest his presence in the most holy place. Every Israelite could approach as far as the outer court. But then only those in the priesthood could continue further into what was called the holy place. After that, into the very heart of the temple. Only once a year could the high priest go in. And enter the most holy place in the very presence of God to offer a blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now what was the point of all that? Well several things but foremost it was to teach the people about God's holiness. If we assume that knowing God is not a right but a privilege then we have to ask how can a holy God dwell with the sinful people? How can a holy God gather around himself an entire nation of sinners, of rebels, of those who would be unfaithful to him and not just wipe them out? The answer is the temple. The Lord is a holy God. He is separate. That means he is separate from us in glory and purity. And he is so holy that the scriptures are clear. Unless the right precautions are taken, the sinner who approaches would be wiped out. One man found this out the hard way as they were bringing the ark to the temple. God had told them the appropriate way to carry the ark. They were to have four men carry it on their shoulders, never to touch the ark itself, but only wooden rods that would, it would rest on. And yet they thought they knew better. They put it on, a, on a, an oxen cart and thought, this is better. But the cart began to tip and to jostle. And a man clearly desiring to save God's honor by not having mud splash in his ark, he reached out to steady it, and God instantly destroyed him. And, and David became so angry and frustrated that he didn't understand it, and yet God said, you don't know better than me. Furthermore, I don't need you to keep mud off my ark. I don't need you to preserve my honor. I am the Holy One of Israel, and you must understand and obey. Therefore, access to God was restricted. It was mediated through the priesthood. The people of God came to God through the priest and the high priest and the offerings that they offered. The whole temple system was designed to allow a holy God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. But now Jesus has come. The book of Hebrews calls him the better high priest who offers not an animal, but himself For his people, and upon that offering, upon his death, we are told the curtain separating the most holy place where only the high priest could go once a year, and the rest of the temple and the priesthood and the people, it split in two. What does that mean? It means here is the Almighty presence of God now suddenly revealed for everyone. There is no longer a need because of Christ's death for. Priests and for sacrifices and for temples. Now, Christ is the temple. He is the place where we meet and dwell with God in His presence. Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh. Since we have a great high priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, a perfect sacrifice, there is no more temple. There is no more mediated presence with God. We, today, this morning, have sought God's face. We have come directly to Him in prayer and asked Him to be with us. Why? Because we're righteous? No. Because Christ is righteous and offered Himself for us. But how did that sacrifice accomplish this access to God? How is it that His death brings us near? This leads us to the second thing that we want to see this morning. Second benefit, and that is this. The cross brought judgment on sin. The cross brought judgment on sin. In addition to the curtain of the temple being torn in two, Matthew tells us that the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that is language and symbolism of God's judgment. We see it throughout the Old Testament. And the question is, why is God's judgment being poured out here? Is He simply angry at sinful humanity who killed, who crucified His Son? No, it's much more than that. It's much more than that. If you've seen any of the films and movies that that portray the crucifixion, perhaps like the passion, you'll know one of the things they do is focus on the physical brutality and suffering that Jesus went through during those, those moments leading up to and even on the cross. And certainly his experience was a brutal one. But the physical suffering is nothing. It is nothing compared to the spiritual suffering that he endured for those three hours on the cross. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, from noon until three. Matthew says from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, my lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why was Jesus forsaken by his own father? Because for those three hours, Jesus, the only perfect man who ever lived, the Son of God in the flesh, for those three hours, he endured the full wrath of God against sin. That isn't something you can just show up on a screen. That's not something you can capture on film. That's not something you can represent with imagery. But it is something that you can describe. It's something that you can explain and tell and proclaim. And that's what the Bible does. Remember how the curtain was torn in two, effectively ending the temple system? Listen to how the New Testament describes Jesus' experience now of sin bearing on the cross. Again, Hebrews 10. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. For every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There's no more anger towards God's people for their sin. Christ has satisfied it all that way. There is no need for a priest to continually stand before God. Romans 3 says, We are forgiven by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. A propitiation is a sacrifice that appeases, it satisfies one's wrath. The Bible says Jesus was our propitiation he satisfied God's wrath for our sins. We deserved to be punished forever in hell for our rebellion against God. But in his grace and love, God sent his own son to die and take upon himself the judgment we deserve. Thus in Colossians 2 we read that God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so finally Paul can say it was for our sake That God made him, that is Christ. God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died for sinners. Christ took God's wrath for their sin. He suffered the judgment they deserved. He died so that those who deserve hell could receive heaven instead. Christ died so that guilty people might find forgiveness from God. Christ was forsaken by God so that God's people would never be forsaken by God. That is the message, the meaning of the cross. How should we respond to such a message? This leads me to the third thing that I want us to see this morning. And that is this. The cross produces saving faith. The cross produces saving faith. Look how Matthew ends this section. Verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Now in the context of Matthew's gospel written primarily to Jews, he shows the Jews primarily missed it. The Pharisees have missed it. The scribes have missed it. The nation as a whole literally called out for Jesus, their Messiah, to be crucified. And to have a known thief and murderer released instead. The kind of people who knew the scriptures and who saw Jesus' life and ministry firsthand, those that should have embraced him in faith, instead rejected him. But here is a Gentile, a pagan centurion who knows nothing of the law, who knows nothing of the Jewish scriptures, who knows nothing of the sacrifice and the life of Israel. And what does he say? He was the very son of God. The one who came in humility and obedience to his heavenly Father. The one who came in righteousness, dying for the unrighteous, satisfying God's wrath against sin. He was more than just a man. He was the Son of God. Now surely that centurion knew and understood later much more than he did at those moments at the foot of the cross. Nevertheless, Matthew includes this so that we know what is the appropriate response to Christ. It is faith. Faith. I had the great opportunity last week to visit an art museum uh, in Indianapolis. It was my first time in an art museum, and my wife was a little surprised at that. And I uh, thought I was a bit of a geek as I was rubbing my hands uh, at the prospect of it. But uh, we went in this place and it was amazing because, you know, if you take general education courses in college, often there's an art appreciation class and some other things. And uh, if you just watch television, you'll be introduced to all kinds of famous artists. And you see in books and in pictures all these famous pieces of art. And then suddenly you're standing in front of it. You're looking at these things that are, are worth small fortunes, that they make movies about, heists about. And here you are in front of these things. And they're beautiful. They're amazing. And there was one, Van Gogh, one of my favorite artists. And I'm literally, I mean, I had the security worried. They kept kind of circling around because I got like inches away from this thing. I was so close. You could see that the texture of, of the paint. You could see his strokes down into the canvas. It was amazing. And we spent a couple of hours walking through this thing. And then when we were done, we had seen all we wanted to see when our feet hurt from walking around so much. We exited the museum, we got in our van, and we went and got milkshakes. And that was it. I mean, it was great, but that was it. Friends, that's not the cross. The cross is not something that you walk up to and you behold. It's not something that you imagine in your mind's eye. It's not something that you can can picture happening with a man hanging naked with flesh torn from his back and a crown of thorns pressed into his head. Blood dripping. Sweat pouring. Agony written all over his face. Darkness all around. And you just walk away from to get milkshakes. That's not the cross. When you see the cross of Christ, when you understand what its intent was, a response is required. And only one response is suitable, and that is faith. It is belief, a life-changing belief in what God has done through the death of His Son on the cross. God's salvation doesn't just come to us. It is not like a fuzzy warm blanket that God wraps the world in. And we're all just going to be okay one day. And we're all going to go to a better place. No. No. Faith in Christ is required to receive the salvation that he has secured on the cross. The Bible says that the salvation that was planned by God and secured by Christ comes into us. We receive it when we trust in christ and that trust will be evidence in a changed life that displays we really believe what the bible says happened on the cross make sure you get it in the right order though it's not that our life is lived differently and so earn salvation at the end of the at the end of the day No, it's that we look at Christ and believe. We believe that He is the Son of God. We believe He died under the wrath of His Father for our sin. We believe we are sinners and need that death to make us right with God. And then in believing those things, we will have experienced God's salvation and our lives will be changed. We will continually pursue God and an ever-increasing change in our life. This is what Jesus' Apostle Paul wrote about in his letter to the Galatians. He says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul says that three times. We are saved, we are justified, that is, we are declared righteous, we are forgiven of our sins through faith, through faith, through faith, he's hammering this in because people are saying, no, no, it's what you do. Yeah, you got to believe, but you got to live a good life too. And Paul says, no, for forgiveness of sins, it is simply believing in the finished work of Christ. It's not about what we do, but what about he has done for us. Yet, yet having believed, now we live a life of belief. Having received Christ's salvation by faith, we are now told to take up our own cross and follow after him in faith. What does that mean? That means we put to death our selfish ways of living and we live as if Jesus is our king. In other words, this life of faith is meant to be a lifelong faith. We don't just believe once. But rather, every morning we wake up believing in, trusting in Jesus to be our Savior, living like He is our King. That is the response demanded by the cross. Many decades ago, Isaac Watts wrote of this wondrous cross, and he makes this very point. He says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life my all. But didn't Jesus die? How do you live for a dead king? This is the last thing that we see this morning. The cross gives hope of the resurrection. The cross gives hope of the resurrection. Verse 51, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, I've said before, this has got to be one of the strangest passages in the New Testament. Partly because we don't read about it anywhere else. We're just given this little taste of what happened with no real explanation. But trying to understand what we know from the rest of the Bible, it seems like Matthew is telling us that these saints, these holy ones, that is, the people who were probably well-known believers of the Old Testament, they experienced a kind of temporary resurrection similar to Lazarus. And notice the order of things. So the tombs broke open upon Jesus' death. It wasn't until after Jesus Christ himself came back to life on the third day that these individuals were also raised back to life and began preaching to people. Matthew says, coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, that is Christ, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Even before the next chapter that we're going to look at on Sunday, Matthew is tipping his hand. Yes, Jesus died a real physical death, but he didn't stay dead. He came back with a real physical body and life. Though all appeared lost and hopeless at the cross, the promised Messiah was strung up there and killed this was, in fact, God's plan to bring eternal salvation to his people. And the proof is seen in the resurrection of Christ. If there is any doubt, Matthew tells his fellow Jews, that Jesus really died and rose again, remember these guys. Look at these guys. Ask about these guys. The heroes of the faith. Those that we hear about in Sabbath school, on, on Saturday nights, that we teach our young kids about. Here they were alive again to tell us, Jesus himself rose From the dead. Several years ago, there was a pastor at Mount Carmel Baptist Church who preached a sermon called It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And all throughout this sermon, he is describing the cross, and yet he keeps repeating with building intensity throughout the sermon It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It is Friday, but Sunday is coming. coming." The day of defeat has in its shadow the anticipation of the day of victory. Christ goes into the ground, but he comes out again with new life and lordship over all things. Today we celebrate, we remember his atoning death. But on the third day, this Sunday, we will celebrate the fact that Jesus did not stay dead. And here's the thing, Jesus By his resurrection we are told he is vindicated by God. So that all that he taught, all that he said, all that he did is shown to be true and real. He is from God the Savior. And one of the things that he promised is this. That by his own resurrection we know that we likewise one day will be raised from the dead. Because he came back to life incorruptible through the resurrection. So one day we ourselves have a certain hope of our own, full salvation, new eternal life with God. This morning we stand like that Roman sertarian before Christ. We see him hanging on the cross, suffering under the hand of God for our sins. And today we have a choice, to reject him as Savior and Lord, or to embrace him as the treasure of our life. This morning if God's Spirit is calling you to faith, do not harden your heart. Do not turn away and ignore the cross, but rather answer the call and trust Christ to be your Savior that you might find forgiveness of sins. If God has already called you to faith, remember again the offering of Christ for your sins. Behold His glory more clearly. Love Him more deeply and live with Him as your King. Father, we are thankful for the cross. We are thankful for the salvation that You secured through it. We pray, dear God, that you would help us this day and this weekend to remember again and again and again the glory of what you did on that dark day. Father, as we behold it more clearly, give us faith to believe it more deeply, God. Help us to treasure even that instrument of death by which our salvation was won. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.